It's one of the things that we had originally talked about in terms of this book as being one of the themes or if not the theme of the book of Deuteronomy. But as I was thinking about this title, Choose Life, which we'll see will come across in our text here tonight as a direct quote from chapter 30, I couldn't help but thinking that oftentimes you hear that the idea or a saying or a phrase that's pretty common where in reference to a particular choice that might be in front of you, the saying would be, well, it's not a life or death decision. And the idea is don't overanalyze or worry about decisions that are ultimately relatively trivial in life. And so that saying is quite common. Well, you know, you might be kind of vacillating back and forth between two potential options on a decision that in and of itself doesn't have any real impact on your life. And so you'd say, well, it's not really a life or death decision. And that gives you sort of the freedom to not overdo it or overthink or to overthink something that really isn't worth that extra amount of analysis or time. And this this perspective of it's not really a life or death decision, that's very helpful at times. In fact, it's great at times to remember that a lot of decisions just need to be made. And there isn't any particular long-lasting consequence or ramification associated with, with it. But that perspective, if it's taken too far, it can also become a crutch that is used to avoid actually thinking through things, actually thinking clearly about things, actually thinking in a way that is principled, that takes principles that you've learned from the Word of God that are impacted by the truth from God's word and applying them to the decisions in front of you to say, well, it's not really a life or death decision. I don't need to analyze this very much. Well, that can, of course, become a crutch too if it's used improperly or just an excuse, I guess, a way to justify or rationalize not really thinking principally about things that are in front of us. Now, on the physical plane, People make life and death decisions more often than they realize. So when you say something like, it's not a life or death decision, the fact of the matter is every day, whether you realize it or not, most people are making life and death decisions. And you say, come on, now that's a little bit much. Is that really true? Well, think about driving your automobile. Think about getting into your vehicle. Now, as you do that, you make all kinds of different decisions, many of them because of the speeds involved, because of the other motorists on the highway, many of those decisions end up being life or death decisions. It could be just something simple like you're going to come to an intersection. Come to this intersection as you leave here tonight. There's a stop sign there. You have to make a decision. Am I going to stop or not stop? When you stop, you have to decide, am I going to wait for the traffic to clear or am I going to drive out into traffic. So you're not really thinking about this because this is sort of common sense decisions where there's only one obvious decision to be made so it doesn't even feel like a decision. But it's in fact a life and death decision. And you think about the different ways that people end up losing their lives. Oftentimes it's from relatively mundane things. Another example when it comes to driving, you, if you live in this state, you're forced to drive in a number of different weather conditions, right? A wide-ranging number of weather conditions. But in the Minnesota winter, you're often driving in conditions that are less than ideal for traction. 
So you've got to make decisions about is where I'm going, is getting there on time or getting there early, is it worth driving faster than I should be for the conditions? Now, that simple decision is a life or death decision. You can think about other examples. We could go on for a while, but as you were to walk down a set of stairs, you make a decision, if there's a handrail available anyway, you make the decision as to whether or not you're going to grab that handrail for safety as you go down the stairs. Now, can that be a life and death decision? It can be, and it's a relatively small thing, but it has significant consequences or impacts on your life. Now, you think about other life and death decisions, maybe not as common, but you have a lot of end-of-life kind of decisions that are made where you may have a health care directive. Maybe you don't. If you don't, you may want, maybe want to think about that. But somebody, for other people in their lives, is going to end up making some of those decisions potentially. You may be making them for yourself. Now, that could be a life-or-death decision. And you can, I, another example, I guess, that came to my mind is just handling various dangerous things. You know, there was chainsaws running here today that I heard a couple of different times. Handling a chainsaw is no, it's no small business. It's very serious business. If it's handled incorrectly, that could be a life and death decision the way something like that is handled. And you could say the same thing about firearms. You could say the same thing about anything that is potentially dangerous if it's not used correctly. And so that's on the physical plane there where throughout your life there's a variety of different life and death decisions. Now, when we're talking about choosing life here, though, of course the focus is on the spiritual plane, not the physical plane. So on the spiritual plane, life and death decisions are made throughout every day. Now, if you want the Cliff Notes version of this message, it's it's simply this, that you either include or you exclude the Lord in whatever it is you're doing. Now, in terms of present living, whether you're really going to live in that moment or not, whether you're really going to experience life the way God intended, to truly live, not just to exist, but to truly live, God defines as only being possible if that time or that moment is spent with him, including him in that moment. So the choice throughout the day, many choices are made on the spiritual plane. Am I really going to live in this moment or not? And it comes down to, in that particular moment, am I going to include the Lord or am I going to exclude him? Now, there's a lot of different ways to go about including him. There's a lot of different even degrees or levels of that to some extent in the sense that sometimes you might be very consciously focused on it. Other times it may just be a, a general attitude or spirit that is saying, in effect, I, I want to have my mind influenced by you in this moment. As I go about my work, I'm going to do it with a song in my heart. I'm going to do it heartily as unto the Lord and not, not unto man. I'm going to be worried more about pleasing him than pleasing others. It could be a, a general attitude that reflects this mentality where I'm living life by means of or the influence of the Spirit of God. I'm involving God in this moment. That can include raising your children. That can include making a meal. That can include picking things up or cleaning up around the house. It can include, well, as Moses talks about, these things should be on your mind when you get up, when you lay down, when you sit, when you rise, when you walk, when you stand, when you're awake, when you're sleeping. 
This is what should be on your mind all of the time, this idea of having this life that is characterized as one of faith where you're including God in your life, you're allowing him to direct in your life, you're, you're relying and depending on his provision for your life being the kind of life that he has planned for you. So when you talk about life and death decisions, throughout the day you're making life or death decisions as it relates to that particular window or that particular moment of time on that spiritual plane. So we think about this title, Choose Life. And it's been the underlying theme of Deuteronomy. Moses Moses is exhorting the nation to walk by faith, to operate in dependence on God's provision for their every need, including his provision for their biggest need, which is their sinfulness, and to follow God's direction for their lives. And he's repeatedly equated doing so with living life or being alive. And then he's repeatedly associated refusing to do so with death. In the context of the conditional Mosaic covenant, physical death Uh, But more importantly, I'd say spiritual death, saying that you cannot experience spiritual or physical blessing in this context apart from doing so in a walk of faith that has God at its center. So tonight we're going to, he's been referencing that, Moses has been referencing that throughout these chapters leading up to chapter 29 and chapter 30 here, which Lord willing we'll get through tonight. Now, but tonight we're going to see him present this theme in the clearest presentation possible as we look at chapters 29 and 30 because this is where ultimately that theme, choose life, that many have found to be one of the key, if not the key, focus of this book. We're going to see it in chapter 30. So let's take a look in greater detail. Obviously, we have some work in front of us if we're going to get through two chapters. Now, chapter 29, we're not going to ignore this or just skip across it. Chapter 29, you could generally label it, and perhaps even your study Bible does label it as, the covenant is reviewed or some say renewed. The covenant is reviewed or renewed. I would say generally that's what this chapter 29 ends up being about. This isn't the only time that this is done. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, we'll see it a number of times. We know that there's going to even be a covenant renewal ceremony when they come into the land that's already been covered in this book of Deuteronomy. We know that in future times, there'll be effectively a covenant renewal as people realize how far they've strayed from God's direction for their lives. And they have a national mindset that is focused on turning back to him in faith, operating as a nation of faith. But you can't operate, again, as a nation of faith unless you have individuals who are walking by faith collectively. And so, yes, the, I would say more important than anything, perhaps, is the focus is probably on the national side of this. But, again, I think that's splitting hairs because you can't have that focus, again, without the independent, personal side of it in terms of each and every person within that nation. So this is another example though as the covenant is renewed again we're talking about the Mosaic covenant is how it's often referred to. 
But we're looking at that being renewed again, and you're saying, well, here's another example of why many refer to this as the book of remembrance. Remember that one of the ways Deuteronomy is labeled or known is the book of remembrance. And you think about how many times has this this arrangement of God is the one who's going to direct, you're the one who's going to follow because you're convinced that he's good. Because you're convinced that he's good, you're going to follow his direction for his life. When you do that, you're going to thrive physically and spiritually. When you don't do that, you're going to have the opposite outcome. And so we've seen that over and over. And you say, well, why does this have to be a book of remembrance? Why are these things repeated so much throughout the Word of God? Because that theme right there, that I would see that apart from him, I can do nothing. Apart from him, there is no way. There is no way forward. There's no path that will be profitable for me apart from his direction, his leading, his provision for my life. Why is that found throughout? It's because that is the issue. That is the, that is the problem that man faces, that man always approaches, especially spiritual things, but anything with this attitude of, I can do this. I don't need anyone else. And you see that, we've talked about this before, but naturally you see that in people around you. Adults get a little bit better at hiding it, disguising it, making it seem like they're flexible, making it seem like they're willing to be directed. But that independent streak is just hiding under the surface a little bit. It's a little bit sugar-coated. It's a little bit harder to see, but you see it front and center oftentimes with young children, well, children of of all ages, that rebellious, stubborn, I can do this myself. That comes out because by nature, that is the natural default. So these spiritual truths, they need to be reinforced through repetition. So when we look at these first nine verses of chapter 29, if I was going to summarize them, I would say this. Be convinced to trust God by reflecting on his past faithfulness. Be convinced to trust God by reflecting on his past faithfulness. Now, if you're talking about reviewing the covenant, the whole idea is, do you trust God or do you not trust God? Moses is going to make this argument based on God's past faithfulness. And he's going to say, be convinced to trust God, to continue trusting God, to walk by faith. Be convinced to do that by reflecting on God's past faithfulness in your life. And I've said this before, and I think this is something that is, it bears repeating and it's worth remembering. There is absolutely no spiritual value to reflecting on your past failures. Let me say that again. There's no spiritual value to you reflecting on your past failure. But there is tremendous value in remembering God's past faithfulness. Tremendous value in that. And so you think about, a song popped to my mind as I was thinking about this concept of I would be emboldened to continue this walk of faith or step out by faith or trust God in my life as I reflected back on his past demonstration of faithfulness in my life. Reminded me of this song, Do It Again, that is a more modern contemporary Christian song. But the hook of the song says, Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. 
And you think that's what Moses is really saying here. Look at God's past faithfulness. Allow that to give you confidence and inspiration to continue a life of dependence, a life of faith on, in him because he's never failed you yet. He's never failed you yet. That's a fact. Now, there's times you may have felt like he let you down, but the failure wasn't on his part. It's a current inability on your part to see that, in fact, he was being faithful. He's always been faithful. His very character is faithfulness. It's incompatible with who he actually is to be anything but faithful. And so you're associating your disappointment or some failure that you're going through in your life and putting that on him. That's not right thinking on your part. Now, does that mean you'll always understand what God's doing? No. Does it mean that it's sinful to not understand what God's doing? No. It says, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. They're unsearchable in many ways. So no. But what's, what's incorrect is to start to view him as not being faithful. Even though you can't all the time understand why he's allowing the things to go on that are going on or why he's bringing about circumstances in your life. Why things are the way they are. Why the world is allowed to be the way it is. It's fine to not understand that. But you still can say, but I know you're good and I know you're faithful and I know that you, in fact, say that if I lack wisdom, I could ask you for that wisdom and perhaps in your blessing, in your mercy, in your grace, you'll see fit to even enlighten me, open my eyes or give me understanding where I presently lack understanding. That should be your prayer in those moments. Not to have it shake or impact your view of God's faithfulness. Now, we're not going to read every verse here. I do want to read a few of them here as we start out. Verse 20, chapter 29 starts with, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel. That lets us know that this is sort of a review of the covenant arrangement that the nation had entered into with God. Now, in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with him at Horeb, this is a repeat. Now, this isn't a new covenant. This is a review or a renewal, if you will, of the original covenant. Now Moses called all Israel, so you have this sense that everybody is being called to attention to listen to and be reminded about this arrangement or covenant that they have with God. You have, so now he gets into God's past faithfulness here though, and this is the application to our lives. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Note how he starts with these remembrances of God's past faithfulness. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Now he could have gone on at length about what those things were, but the Lord had provided in so many amazing ways for the people. He'd given them a great number of Red Sea moments. He'd given them manna from heaven. He'd given them water from rocks. He'd taken bitter water and made it sweet. He'd given them even meat in the form of birds from heaven. He'd provided a way. He'd directed them. He'd led them. He'd given them victory over much greater adversaries. There was a lot that they could, that is tied up in this. Now he goes on to say, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear 
to this very day. Now remember, he just got done saying, you've seen all of this stuff. You've seen all of God's greatness. You've seen all of these signs and wonders. He's shown himself to you in many different ways, but yet, even to this day, you do not have a heart to perceive, eyes to see, or ears to hear. To this very moment, he's saying, you still don't get it. So to this day suggests that Israel has not yet understood the spiritual implications of these past interventions or saving events that God had provided for them. And you ask yourself, well, what was missing in their lives? Why hadn't they seen this yet? Well, what was missing was a response of faith. That's what was missing. That's what's missing in your life when you say, I still don't see him for who he is. I still don't really perceive him the way he ought to be perceived. I still, ha- I still don't know him the way that I ought to know him. And that's why Paul, even in his life, we understand that that's a process over time to grow in one, one's faith. That there's a, a process of maturity that doesn't automatically start with full-grown maturity. It starts with infanthood. And then from being an infant, there's growth over time that can take place as you see God work in your life. You see God's faithfulness. You learn to trust him more. As you do that, you learn to give him more things that you otherwise would have held on to or kept control of or sought to get through through in your own wisdom, in your own understanding. You learn to trust in the Lord with all your heart instead of just some of your heart. You learn to not lean on your own understanding, but to learn to lean on his guiding. In all your ways, you learn to acknowledge him instead of some of your ways. And then he does direct your path to a greater and greater extent. That's growth over time. But what's missing when you still don't get it, you still don't see it, is that in that moment anyway, there isn't the full response of faith that God is looking for. And in the case of the nation of Israel, disobedience and rebellion have characterized their walk with the Lord on a national level. And again, for that to be true on a national level, that has to reflect an immaturity on an individual level too. So that disobedience and rebellion, they've obscured any complete understanding of the implications of God's past saving works in their lives. They don't get it because it's been tainted. It's been obscured by that disobedience and rebellion that have come to characterize so much of their interaction with the God of the universe, Jehovah God, that has been guiding them and providing for them and leading them and directing their steps. You see, God doesn't force his illumination and divine enlightenment on people. It accompanies a walk of faith apart from which people always remain insensitive to God's work in their lives. You see that God wants to illuminate your eyes. He wants to provide you with enlightenment. But those things accompany growing in your faith. They accompany a walk of faith. They accompany learning to trust God. You're not going to have his illumination and his enlightenment apart from living life with him and walking in dependence on him and learning to trust him. They can't be separated. They all go together. So when you don't have that level of sensitivity to seeing how God is working in your life, to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, it's because you're not operating in faith the way that God intends for you to. So do you wallow in that? 
Do you sit around feeling sorry for yourself in that? No, the answer is to recognize that there's still room for growth to get your eyes off of whatever's distracting you and to reorient and refocus your gaze on God alone, to go vertical and get your eyes off of the horizontal. We see that even in the New Testament with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now, many of you know this verse, but it says that, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, you see the positive volitional response there? God doesn't force himself on you. He who comes to God, what characterizes that person? He who comes to God must believe that he is, that's the first part of it, and must also believe that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Yes, it's true that God is drawing men to himself. Yes, it's true that the Spirit of God is at work in the world around us and in the case of the New Testament, the church-age believer is at work within, within, within every believer or inside every believer. You can't take within and inside and make one word out of that, just so you know. But inside every believer. That's true. But God isn't forcing himself on people. He's not forcing you to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. He's not forcing you to walk by means of the Spirit. Those are choices that have to be made. Do you want to know him? He wants to be known. Do you want to know him? He's revealed his truth. He's revealed himself to you. How badly do you want it? Will you spend the time getting to know him? Will you include him in the affairs of your life? Will you take him with you to wherever it is you're going? Will you learn to depend on him instead of leaning on yourself as you go through the moments of every day? Those are the questions. So does it describe you? Does this verse 4, it's a very sobering verse. In, in fact, we could, do the, we could have done the whole message on this. Despite seeing all of these things, are you still in the perspective position where your heart has yet to perceive, your eyes have yet to see, and your ears have yet to hear to this very day, despite decades of watching God or observing God work in your life, you still don't get it. And the answer is to some extent, that's true of all of us. To some extent, that's a sobering thing to think about. But do you have to stay there? Do you have to live life there? Or can you say, Lord, I want to. Oh, that I may know him. Like Paul was saying further on in his Christian life, as a developed Christian who was trusting the Lord in many ways, he's still saying, I haven't arrived. He's still praying, oh, that I might know him better, know him more, know him in a greater way, know him more intimately. That's my heart's desire. Now, is that your desire? Because if it's not your desire, God isn't going to force that to happen in your life. Now, what was God's intended purpose in having provided for them in the past? Why, if we're reviewing God's past faithfulness, what was God's intended purpose in that? Well, look at verse 6. It says, You have not eaten, well, let's go back to verse 5, and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. This is God's, Moses speaking as inspired by the Lord. Your clothes have not worn out. Your sandals have not worn out. 
You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That there signals a purpose statement. This is why. This is why God was providing. This is why God was showing that without me you can do nothing. So that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That you need me. That you can't function apart from me. That's what I wanted to show you in all of this. I think that's powerful to see here in this chapter too. So then what should be the outcome of reflecting on God's past faithfulness? What should that, what should that do or what should that bring about? Well, let's look at verse 9. Therefore, there's a, another signal here that we have a conclusion of a thought. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, now with what purpose or outcome in mind, that you may prosper in all that you do. Now, in the context, there's, yes, a physical aspect to this. But I have said over and over again, God has absolutely no concern in the physical or concern about the physical prosperity apart from the spiritual prosperity that would come along with it. God has no desire to, even in the context here of this conditional covenant, even though there was a physical prosperity attached to obeying God as motivated by a great love for God, as motivated by trusting God, as motivated by walking a life, walking by faith, having a life of faith. Yes, there was that physical prosperity attached to it, but God is focused on hearts, friends. He's always been focused on hearts. He wasn't more focused on externals then than he is now. He was always most focused on man's heart response to his provision in their lives. Both his provision to deal with the sinfulness that they could never resolve or never deal with apart from him and his provision to meet their every need, his provision to direct their every step. God's focus has always been on your heart response to that. And that was true even in the Old Testament. It was true from the very beginning until now. That's a transdispensational principle. Now he goes on in verses 10 through 19 to say that this covenant agreement, it affects everyone. So if we're reviewing the covenant generally in chapter 29 here, he takes nine verse nine verses roughly to say that this covenant agreement affects everyone within the nation of the of Israel. And so if we were to read those verses, which we're not going to, we're just going to glance at a couple of them here. Verse 10, all of you stand today before the Lord your God. Now here's the inclusivity of this. It says your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel. Wait a second, well what about the, the children and the in the women of Israel. Well, we'll cover that in verse 11. Your little ones and your wives. How about the people who aren't a part of the nation? And also the stranger who is in your camp. From the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, every single person within this nation is affected by this covenant agreement. But as you're thinking about that's the general principle there, the focus, though, is on the present the focus is on moving forward. There's this clear implication that we're not to be backward looking even as it relates to this. So we're, we're to be backward looking as it relates to God's faithfulness. We're not to be backward looking as it relates to our failures. So the focus is on moving forward, not 
bringing up and rehashing every aspect of the past. And so then you see in verses 10 through 15, so in those five verses, you have the word today found five times. So five times you see that language and you're thinking about, well, what is the point in that? Well, it's to focus on what's in front of you right now, verse 10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God. You get down to verse 12. That you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today. Verse 13, that he may establish you today. Verse 15, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord. And he ends, he ends that verse by saying, as well as with him who is not here with us today. And so five times in, in these five verses, that word is there. Now, you don't have to make a big deal about everything you come across as you study, but when you see words repeated, I've said this before, that should pique your interest a little bit. There's, there's something to take away from that. And the thing I would take away from that is Moses is saying we're, we're talking about where we stand right now. From where we stand right now, let's move forward with the Lord. That hasn't been the case historically. That wasn't the case with your parents, with the generation before you. That hasn't always been the case with me. I'm not even going to go into the promised land with you. But today, let's renew our focus on depending on the Lord, which ultimately is what that covenant agreement is really about. A walk of faith, depending and trusting on the Lord to direct and to provide in our lives in a way that would benefit us that would be in our best interests. So five times it's there. Now, the primary objective of the covenant is relational exclusivity. The primary objective of the covenant is relational exclusivity. God is a jealous God. He desires all of your worship exclusive of any other. Not some of it, all of your worship. It's funny, as you think about that exclusivity or even that word exclusive, I thought about, you know, an example being two people who are dating. Now, sometimes when people are dating, they're not exclusive. But when they're dating only each other, they're said to be exclusive. And that's what God's after on a relational level with his people. That's what God's after with every man, woman, and child of faith is exclusive relationship focus, relational worship, that it would be exclusively on him. So you see that in verse 18, the first part of the verse, it says, so that, so so gives us an idea of purpose, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. My purpose in renewing this covenant or reviewing this with you is so that you keep your focus on me exclusively and none other. Now, ask yourself, isn't that the thing that is sidetracking us, sidelining us, distracting us, that we're allowing the focus of our lives to be caught up in other gods, other idols, other things that we're exalting to a position of preeminence above where God alone should reside? 
Isn't that the issue from the very beginning till now? Go back to the garden. From, from the very beginning there, has God really said? God is holding back from you. You would be like God if you would just listen to me instead of trusting God. So what was that really? It was self-worship. Putting a higher value on self than on trusting God. And what were the ramifications of that? Well, by one man, sin entered the world. Death came with sin. And then death spread to all mankind because all have sinned. The curse of sin permeated every facet of the world as a result of that decision to not have the exclusive focus on that relationship of worship that mankind was supposed to have with the Creator. Now, don't be deceived. That's the next thing we see, is there is no success apart from God. Don't be deceived. Now, verse 19 is fascinating, perhaps even more fascinating than the thrust of this message, which is on choosing life, which we're working toward. But verse 19 is absolutely fascinating. It says this, And so it may not happen, when he hears hears the words of this curse, that this is a person doing this, this is a person's internal response to being reminded of this covenantal arrangement, this, uh, this relationship with God, this focus on this exclusivity of relationship and worship with God. Now, so he doesn't want this to happen, that when someone would hear the words of this curse, that that person would bless himself in his heart and says this instead, I shall have peace Catch this, though. Even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Now, that's just an example that the two are exclusive. A person cannot be saying, I am going to operate and live life by faith and dependence on God, while at the same time saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart. Even though I lean on my own understanding even though I'm focused on self instead of focused on God and his direction for my life. And I think it's just amazing to see how that is worded there. This person is so delusional that this person is saying, I can have success. Now in our context, it's limited. Spiritual success. This is a delusion to think that you could experience physical success in the context of this covenant or spiritual success in the context of the entire Bible, apart from God. That there could be spiritual success somehow enjoyed by you in your life apart from God. That you could exclude God in your life and yet enjoy God's success, the success that he intends for you to have spiritually. You're, you're saying, well, it couldn't be that somebody could be that deceived. You couldn't be that delusional, could you? Yes, you could be. That's the warning here. That when you attempt to live life apart from me, yet thinking that somehow you'll be at peace, there's no peace apart from God. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me because he's trusting in me. That's where peace is going to be found. In a relationship a present tense relationship, fellowship with the God of the universe. That's where peace is found. Not apart from him, but yet 
Moses knows that there are going to be those, every man does what's right in his own eyes, there are going to be those that listen to this and say, I don't have to heed that. I can find peace apart from that. And in fact, this phrase here, where you see it says, the dictates of my own heart, I follow the dictates of my own heart, that carries this idea of following the desires of your own stubborn heart. That's how other translations have it. I'm going to experience God's peace even though I follow the desires of my own stubborn heart. That's deception at its very worst. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't think that you're above this, that this isn't happening in your life. This is absolutely happening at times in your own life where you think you can experience peace apart from God, that you think you're really living, yet you're excluding God from your life, that you think you know best, even though what you think was best is actually spiritual death. It's actual separation from God as is written there in Proverbs. You can't have it both ways. I hope you see that. Just an absolutely powerful verse there, verse 19. Now there's consequences of rejecting God. Again, we're rehashing or reviewing this covenant arrangement. We've done that at length, so we're not going to hardly touch on this at all. But verses 20 through 29, they have this vivid description of the dire outcome associated with rejecting God, especially verses 20 through 23. You see, you could focus on the, quote, curse part of this arrangement, but it's really more focused on the consequences associated with rejecting God. Yes, it's true that you're rejecting God by not following God's instruction for your life. That, it, that is true. But it's the rejection of God that's actually ultimately the primary issue. The consequences are purely secondary. The issue is God saying, you're not going to thrive apart from me. Quit rejecting me. Quit cutting me out. Quit excluding me from your life. You see, the negative outcome is brought about because, see verse 26, they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. The issue was the rejection of him. That's where the consequence or the fallout comes in the spiritual plane. It comes from rejecting God in your life. And note that the physical, the primary physical consequence parallels the spiritual consequence. You can't reside in my place of rest and provision, which is what the promised land is symbolic of, God's rest, God's provision. You can't reside there while at the same time you reject the one who is making the provision. That's just common sense. You can't experience God's rest and provision and peace in your life when it's provided by him while at the same time rejecting him, the one who's providing those things to begin with. That's just basic logic that we're dealing with. And so, as you think about that, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger. Verse 28. That was the consequence. They were taken out of the place of rest. Now that's a, that's a very specific physical illustration of the practical, the more practical and more important spiritual application. When they turned away from God and rejected him, they no longer were experiencing his rest. 
spiritually. Well, guess what? God had a way of showing us and, and illustrating that in our own lives by saying, and they no longer experienced his rest in the land of rest. They were taken and uprooted from the land because they were rejecting him. So it's this perfect sort of parallelism between these two physical and spiritual planes as God is saying, you're not going to get to experience my provision and rest physically or spiritually while you try to live life apart from me. Do we get that? Do we see that in our own lives? Now the other thing is this, you don't know all God's plans. I love this last verse of the chapter. You don't know all of God's plans, verse 29. But respond to what he has revealed. That's how I would paraphrase that verse. You don't know everything. You don't know all of his plans. But respond to what he has revealed to you. Now that requires you to trust God's goodness. It requires you to trust God's wisdom. It requires you to be convinced of God's concern for you. And it's interesting that in the context of the exile in Babylon, Jeremiah writes this verse that so many of you are familiar with. Now, the principle is applicable to the way we use the verse, but the actual context is about the nation of Israel being in exile. So Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. The context is the exiled nation of Israel. Now the Lord says that. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. I'm for you. I'm not against you. To give you a future and a hope. He's saying this to an exiled nation of Israel that has been taken out of this symbolic place of his provision and rest and been brought to Babylon Babylon for this period of exile. And God's saying to them, I'm for you. I have great plans for you. I want you to experience my peace. I don't want you to go through the consequences that are associated with rejecting me. You brought that on yourself, but I haven't given up on you. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 255 chances. So do you trust God enough to respond to his revealed will in your life? He's saying you don't know everything about my plan, but can you just respond to what's in front of you right now? those things which are revealed. Respond to those things. Now we move on to chapter 30. God is always waiting for your return. God is always, and that's just symbolic of, God is waiting for you to change your mind. We're actually, we're actually going to not try to fight through, force, force our way through chapter 30 here in some kind of a blitzkrieg fashion. There's just too much, there's too much there that is really worth meditating on for us to do that. So we're not, we're not going to do that. We're, gonna, we're just going to wrap up here with chapter 29 being our focus. When 29, chapter 29 here had so many things in it, I would say 
Remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done. Probably I'll retitle this sermon with something along those lines because Choose Life has got to be the title of chapter 30, so we'll retitle it. But when you think about that covenant renewal that has been the focus here of chapter 29 that we've ended up getting through here tonight, we're reminded that we can never be reminded enough. We're reminded that these things naturally fall out of our thinking. We're reminded that we naturally are deceived. We're reminded that we get our thinking out of whack, that we start to forget about God. We forget about his past faithfulness. We forget that he has a plan for our life. We forget that the only way to thrive in this life is staying closely connected to him. We forget those things. We forget that to reject God and to exclude him brings about negative consequences in our lives, negative spiritual consequences. We forget that there's absolutely no way to experience God's rest, God's provision, God's peace apart from him. And I hope that as you think about some of those things that we were reminded of tonight, that those are things you can take home and think about. That these are things that we can apply to our lives and say, why do I keep trying to do life apart from you? Why do, why do I convince myself that I can thrive in time, in the present, in, my, in the Christian life and as it relates to being in the church age here now? But as a man, a woman of faith, that I could thrive somehow apart from God when he's revealed over and over to me that apart from me, you can do nothing, that there will be no success apart from me. So as we think about that call, that reminder to keep me in focus, keep your eyes on me, operate in dependence on me, don't forget me. As you come into this land of blessing, this land of prosperity, this land of rest, don't leave me behind. Bring me with you into that. Don't turn aside to other gods. Don't make other things your object of worship. Don't be distracted by the thinking and the things of the world around you. Keep your eyes on me. Don't forget me because that's the path to success. May that have been a good reminder for us here tonight too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this 29th chapter of Deuteronomy. Thank you that it was such a great reminder again as to why things have to be repeated. A great reminder of how easy it is to be deceived, distracted, to forget about the Lord, to reject him, to be unwilling to follow him and to trust his leading in our lives. Pray that we could be remembered that if that is the natural tendency, that we can't fall asleep. We can't just expect that this is going to happen automatically without investing in any of the things that would promote a remembrance of who you are and what you've done, that would reorient our view to the things that matter most. And we know that those things are found in fellowship with one another, that they're found in investing time in your word, that they're found in meditating on psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that those things are the very things that point our eyes back to 
the only source of spiritual success in our lives, which is that intimate relationship with you. Pray that we would want to have that relationship, that we would want to live life with you, that we would learn to include you in more and more things and not to exclude you. Thank you for the time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen.